You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. The Daggerfly APT targets an African telecommunications provider. Evil Extractor is an alleged teaching tool gone bad. A Chinese-speaking threat group is active against Taiwan and South Korea. Europe's air traffic control is under attack. A look at the RSA Innovation Sandbox. Awais Rashid from University of Bristol on the cybersecurity of smart farming. And forget about those evil maids. What about those evil sysadmins? From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, April 21st, 2023. Symantec yesterday published a report on a campaign by the Daggerfly Advanced Persistent Threat against an unnamed African telecommunications company. Also known as Evasive Panda or Bronze Highland, Daggerfly is in all likelihood associated with China. The ongoing campaign abuses the legitimate AnyDesk remote desktop software to deploy previously unseen plugins from the MGBot malware framework. Those plugins' capabilities suggest that Daggerfly's goal is information collection. Symantec's post includes a set of indicators of compromise. Fortinet today blogged about the aptly named Evil Extractor, an info-stealer targeting Windows operating systems. Fortinet says it was developed by a company named Codex, which claims, that is, the software product is an educational tool. However, research conducted by FortiGuard Labs shows cybercriminals are actively using it as an info-stealer. Fortinet reports that based on their traffic analysis, March saw a significant increase in malicious activity with the tool. Hosted by the website evilextractor.com, it's usually introduced by a phishing email. It usually pretends to be a legitimate file, such as an Adobe PDF or Dropbox file, but once loaded, it begins to leverage PowerShell malicious activities. It also contains environmental checking and anti-VM functions. Its primary purpose seems to be to steal browser data and information from compromised endpoints and then upload it to the attacker's FTP server. The malware includes many features and can be used in ransomware campaigns as well. Victims seem to be mostly located in the U.S. and Europe, and Evil Extractor's developer, Codex, has continued to update the info stealer. 
Chinese-speaking threat group Genesis Day has been targeting research and academic organizations in South Korea, the record reported yesterday. The attacks, which seem to be intended for data exfiltration, occurred in January of this year, and it appears that a new round of attacks has been launched against Japanese and Taiwanese organizations. An analysis by Recorded Futures Insect Group says that 12 South Korean research and academic websites were attacked, suffering website defacements in which the adversaries replaced each hosted website with their own in a compromised server. Genesis Day shared on its public Telegram channel that the Korea Internet and Security Agency was intended to be the first governmental target of the group. The group also made unverified claims of cyber attacks against the U.S., Ukraine, Taiwan, Japan, and South Korea's Ministry of Health and Defense Ministry. Genesis Day seems to be that rare bird, a disinterested patriotic hacktivist crew. The record reports that there were no ties discovered between the Chinese government and the threat actor, but that the hackers also sought neither fame nor profit from the attacks. Di Wu, senior threat intelligence analyst at Insect Group, said, Based on the analysis of the group's telegram channels, postings on special access forums, and its presence on a clearnet website, we conclude that this is a hacktivist group primarily motivated by patriotism toward China, and it will likely conduct similar cyber attacks against Western and NATO targets, as well as any country or region deemed hostile to China. The European Air Traffic Control Agency Eurocontrol reports that it's under cyber attack by Russian actors. Eurocontrol's website has a terse account of the attack, which appears to be of the familiar DDoS variety. Eurocontrol says the attack is causing interruptions to the website and web availability and that there's been no impact on European aviation. The Wall Street Journal reports that Killnet has claimed responsibility the claim is entirely consistent with Killnet's record. Nuisance-level DDoS has been their specialty. Support personnel can represent as much of an insider risk to security as can line personnel, sometimes more because of the way they can be overlooked or disregarded. This can be seen, for example, in the so-called evil-maid attacks that might be carried out by an actual member of a cleaning crew. The Wall Street Journal offers reflections on the ongoing investigation of the Discord Papers leaks, especially for what they reveal about the access that IT personnel acquire to sensitive information in the course of their daily work. The journal writes, Airman Teixeira, the alleged leaker of the Discord Papers, worked on cyber transport systems, a role that involved work to keep communication systems up and running, according to an Air Force job description, the story goes on to point out that another notorious leaker, Edward Snowden, was also in tech support. Mr. Snowden, who lives in Russia, was described by officials at the time of his leak in 2013 as a systems administrator. Their motives, alleged in Airman Teixeira's case, were quite different, but the access their positions gave them had much in common. The European Cyber Conflict Research Initiative has issued a report on a conference that studied Russian methods of cyber warfare. The ECCRI writes, In line with its doctrine of information confrontation, 
Russia employed a variety of cyber operations during the war at an unprecedented scale. The primary goals of wartime operations, sabotage, influence, and espionage, have remained constant. Cyber operations provide new opportunities to achieve age-old objectives. The study focuses on what Russia achieved, most prominently a high cyber operational tempo, as opposed to the many and obvious ways Russian cyber operations fell far short of pre-war expectations. The takeaways may be this. Cyber attack tools, tactics, techniques, and procedures tend to have a short life. Once used, they're blown, at least if they're used against an opponent who pays attention, and above all, an opponent who learns. Coming up after the break, a look at the RSA Innovation Sandbox, a Weiss Rashid from University of Bristol on the cybersecurity of smart farming. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. RSA Conference is right around the corner, and one of the highlights of the show is the annual Innovation Sandbox, a friendly competition providing hopeful startups with the chance to pitch their wares to a group of distinguished judges and perhaps catch the eye of investors and partners. My guests today are Cecilia Marinier, Senior Director at RSA Conference for Innovation and Scholars, and one of the Innovation Sandbox judges, Barmak Mefta co-founder and general partner at Ballistic Ventures. Barmak Mefta starts us off. 
I'm actually really excited um, to be uh, to be part of that uh, incredible group of folks that are going to judge some of the best entrepreneurs that we see out there. And, uh, you know, what we do as venture capitalists is, you know, we look at a lot of ideas every year and, um, you know, uh, patterns start to emerge and sort of applying the same pattern matching towards some of the most innovative companies, especially in the early stages uh, of entrepreneurship is really, is really an incredible thing to do. So for me, it's a natural extension of what I do every day. And, um, and this uh, fell on my lap and I couldn't be happier to be part of it. What are some of the things in your mind that, that set apart the competitors that can really uh, launch someone to the top? Yeah, I think, you know, as I look at the submissions and sort of look at the trends in the industry in general, I put them into two distinct categories. There's what I would call evolutionary ideas, which um, only occur in cybersecurity, probably more than any other area in technology. And those fall into the category of old security controls that have to be reinvented uh, because of compute architecture changes and what we call adversarial obsolescence, which is the adversary forces the obsolescence of old security controls. And so you have to think about new ways of doing what uh, probably has become obsolete. Um, so in that category, think of, you know, application security is making a huge comeback. So the idea of, you know, giving the appropriate tools in the hands of the developers so security can be built into the fabric of the software. That's an evolutionary idea, but the move to the cloud has sort of um, forced the reinvention of that. I would say um, data security falls into that category. Um, cryptography uh, falls into that category. And then the second distinct uh, themes that we look at are revolutionary ideas, which are, um, you know, trends that haven't necessarily happened yet, but we see the emergence of those happening. You know, a couple of examples I can point out to, you know, giving developers the appropriate APIs or SDK so they can build cyber features into the fabric of the software has never been done before. This is something revolutionary and brand new. There's a emergence of Web3 technology that really, from a market timing perspective, we might be two to three years out still, but I think it's a trend that's going to emerge. And so we look at both and, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say one is more important than the other, but uh, they kind of fall in different themes and and uh, we love innovative companies that play in either either um, either group. Cecilia, you all recently announced the finalists for this year's Innovation Sandbox. What strikes you as you look at that list? Are, are there any trends here or anything that they have in common? Or is it a, a wide spectrum of possibilities here? Now, see, that, Dave, is why I brought Barmack on. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll just say one piece about it myself, and then I do want to actually let Barmack kind of speak to the trends. One of the things that was really amazing this year was just the amount of companies, the number of companies that actually uh, applied to RSA Conference Innovation Sandbox. We had a 150% increase, and it just demonstrates just how much this industry, how quickly it's moving and how important this is. And so overall, I want to tell all of the people that submitted congratulations because gosh, I'm so grateful that you're doing this in, to our industry to help us out. It's a, it was a very competitive field. So I've already spoken to a couple of companies who didn't make it and they were like, why not? I'm like, my goodness, it was just a crazy great field. So Barmack, I'm going to let you talk a little bit about some of the themes that came up. Uh, you've already addressed some of the big themes, but maybe more specifically about the companies themselves for the top 10. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to echo what you said, Cecilia, which is, uh, you know, the number of submissions from what I heard from Cecilia have increased dramatically, which is awesome to see. Um, you know, it's an area, again, in technology that can, continues to evolve. So, 
um, you know, the number of companies uh, since I started my career in cybersecurity, gosh, better part of 18 years ago, has exponentially increased, which is really awesome to see as well. But um, yeah, you know, um, high level, I pointed out to the kind of the two main themes that that have been evolving over the last eight to 10 years. We see that still evolving. Um, and uh, let's see if I have to pick some examples. You know, the, the other thing I would point out that's really important to point out is is how much time the judges put in to uh, give the appropriate due process to each of these submissions. I mean, these are entrepreneurs that put their uh, blood, sweat, and tear into these submissions that worked really hard. And so we want to ensure that we that we hear all of them and we read, you know, all the submissions. And so we take our job very seriously and, and you know, all the judges put in a ton of time to ensure that we select the top 10 appropriately. But, um, you know, I mean, some of the examples I can pick in the top 10 submissions, again, I think, uh, you know, there's one company that deals with Web3 security, for example. Market timing might not be ideal, but it's a really innovative way of thinking about, you know, how do we secure the infrastructure with, you know, for Web3 as it, as it emerges. Um, there's probably, you know, four or five companies that fall into the application security area, spanning, you know, the gamut of how do we outfit developers with more appropriate tools and effective tools so they can find security vulnerabilities and, and be able to fix those security vulnerabilities during the software development lifecycle, which is really awesome. And it's been a quest of the industry for a long period of time. In fact, my first company, Fortify, was kind of one of the first application security companies that came to market. So it's really heartening to see that emerging. Uh, there's a couple of companies that deal with application security more from an administrative perspective, which is how do we outfit the chief information security officer so they can have central audit control and a, a single pane of glass view towards what's happening upstream in their software development lifecycle. And uh, finally, you know, uh, company, you know, there is one company that provides APIs and an SDK that allows developers that need to build cyber features into the, into the fabric of the application to go to one place to grab all the APIs to need to build those cyber features into the fabric of the application. They're coining the term SPAS, which is Security Platform as a Service. So all of them awesome companies, all of them great companies, very innovative. And I bet we're going to have a hard time selecting who's going to be the best among, among all of them. But, um, but at least we're really proud of the top 10. Yeah, I, I don't envy the task you all have before you there. Uh, Cecilia, I, I want to close with you. I, I mean, the, the week of RSA conference is a busy week for everybody. What's the, uh, what's the equation here for folks to carve out some time in their schedule to make sure that they check out the Innovation Sandbox, things like the Launchpad and the Early Stage Expo programs? Uh, why should folks spend their time here? So everybody in this industry is very aware of how quickly our adversaries are actually moving and how innovative they are. I think that spending time learning more about what we are doing on the on the good fight side to uh, to address those concerns is what is makes innovation here so important. And because, Dave, we've had just such a long year and long history of identifying some of the most incredible companies that are really changing how we address cybersecurity now, in Innovation Sandbox Contest, I want you to go check out Launchpad. It's just great. And the Early Stage Expo. This is a, a great opportunity for those that are caring about how tomorrow adversaries might be acting, tomorrow's adversaries might be acting. How can we address them today? Come and see this at the Innovation Sandbox Contest. See what's happening. That's Cecilia Marinier from RSA Conference and Barmak Mefta from Ballistic Ventures. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear the full interview, head on over to CyberWire Pro at 
sign up for Interview Selects, where you'll get access to this and many more extended interviews. And it is always my pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Weiss Rashid. He is the director of the National Research Center on Privacy, Harm Reduction, and Adversarial Influence Online at University of Bristol. Uh, Professor Rashid, always a pleasure to have you back on the show. You know, I am fascinated uh, by the intersection of cybersecurity and things that are out there in the real world. And I know you and your colleagues have been doing some work when it comes to smart farming. I was hoping you could share with us uh, some insights on that today. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for having me back again. Um, uh, farming, like uh, any other uh, sector, is uh, seeing increased deployment of digital technologies. Uh, you could call call this effectively Internet of Things, but uh, but for farming, and you can see a number of application areas with regards to this in smart farming, for example. In horticulture, you can use this to monitor, for example, crop health. You can uh, use it to monitor, for example, you know, irrigation levels or even kind of um, uh, weather and responding to particular weather or, you know, pest control and those kind of things. Uh, and in uh, other, other types of farming, like dairy farming, uh, it, it can also be used to monitor, for example, animal health feed, uh, movement, you know, grazing and, and, you know, providing more kind of free, uh, free grazing and all those, all those kind of things. So there is a lot of applications of um, Internet of Things and technologies in, in smart farming. So what specifically are the cybersecurity concerns here? So th- that's really where, where the challenge lies, because uh, like with all, all other sectors, digital technologies offer a lot of benefits. But of course, you can also start to see that as technologies are deployed there, they are not necessarily always uh, considered with security uh, built in, uh, especially not too dissimilar to, for example, what we saw in industrial control system security um, uh, devices are being deployed in rugged settings. Okay, farmers are not cybersecurity experts, nor do they have to be. Uh, and even uh, a number of companies who are uh, moving into this space, uh, they're specifically coming in from an agriculture background rather than necessarily from uh, a cybersecurity background or those kind of practices that have been built in, say, for example, in the enterprise setting just currently do not exist. So examples would be that, for example, you you may have a farm and it would run what you would call a flat network. So everything is collect, connected to everything else. There is no isolation. Uh, often things are controlled from a, a single uh, PC, which is then shared by a number of people on the farm. Uh, this may not be regularly updated. Uh, and uh, devices are out there in the open uh, and uh, they, they may not always be getting regular regular updates. So as an example, we've been testing some of the security of uh, the devices that are deployed in, in these farms. So for example, we saw that the remote monitoring and management of some of the farming infrastructure had, uh, you know, vulnerabilities using insecure uh, protocols or uh, default logins, for example, you know, which is considered kind of, you know, basic security practice in enterprise settings. But these kind of things are not necessarily currently being 
uh, utilized in itself. Then there are other things that are being utilized. For example, uh, in case of, say, dairy farming, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, collars uh, or think of them like sort of Fitbits, you know, Fitbits for uh, uh, for cows. Uh, they could be on the legs or, or on the necks, which are used for animals to kind of come by themselves through uh, gates to go out for grazing or come back in due course for, uh, for milking uh, and so on. And again, uh, our analysis shows that there are uh, security vulnerabilities in these. So you can, for example, create effectively jams. So if animals can't get in automatically for milking, then it puts them in discomfort. Or if they can't go out grazing, then it's not good good for their, for their well-being. Uh, and also cameras are often used to kind of monitor health uh, for example, and if if those feeds can be can be interfered with again, you know, uh, basic security practices don't always exist. If those uh, feeds can be interfered with, then you know, again, it leads to a serious a serious welfare issue. So the fundamental thing here is that there are a lot of potential advantages of using smart farming, uh, but the state of security is at a very early stage, uh, and more needs to be done to build both fundamental security practices, but also understand what are the kind of nuanced needs of this sector so that we can provide appropriate cybersecurity mechanisms. And how do you propose we go about doing that? You know, as you mentioned, um, farmers are, are busy doing their farming. So, so how do we provide them with the level of security they need and not interrupt the work they're doing to provide us with a, a reliable food supply? Absolutely. So the key here is really, you know, security of the of the food supply and an individual farm being impacted is perhaps an impact on the individual farmer and their business. But given that a lot of these systems are supplied by the same uh, companies or same same uh, manufacturers, uh, there is a, a risk of what we would call common mode failures that, for example, one vulnerability impacts potentially hundreds of farms. But that's also where the advantage is. So our experience of actually working with the people in the agri-tech sector has been really positive. So the uh, companies who provide these services or these technologies, they're actually very keen to improve the security of these systems. So when we found a vulnerability and we reported, you know, one of the organizations that worked with us and within three days, the fix was deployed across, you know, hundreds of farms because they also provide managed services. So the farmer does not really uh, take responsibility for updating the equipment or so on. This is all done by by the company, which means that they also have the potential to apply security fixes as, as they go along. So multiple things need to be done. I think first this good practice of responding positively to security vulnerabilities and actually improving the state of security is very, very important. And the other is really sort of more work with the with the sector itself to bring up the kind of basic fundamental state of security into the product so that we start with those kind of practices that we have built in already in other areas for example in enterprise settings you know uh, about 20 25 years ago increasingly more in other critical infrastructure sectors to also bring them here uh, of course, you know, regulators have a role to play because considering that the state of security in in uh, farming is very, very important for exactly safeguarding the security of the food, uh, food supply, but also integrity of, of that. So the issue here isn't that, for example, you can disrupt a set of farms and impact 
you know, um, sort of reaching from the farm to the table, uh, potentially if you interfere with treatment parameters, you know, there is impact on destroying crops, for instance. And those are the kind of things that we need to, con- to, to be concerned about. So uh, there is a positive experience on our, on our part interacting with those who work in this sector. But I think more needs to be done to build basic security practices. All right. Well, interesting insights for sure. Professor Awais Rashid, thank you for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Coming up on this weekend's Research Saturday, my conversation with Sharon Guz from Akamai discussing chatbots, celebrities, and victim retargeting and why crypto giveaway scams are still so successful. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Guru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Harold Terrio, Maria Vermatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Millie Lardy, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Janine Daly, Jim Hoshite, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jason Cole, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Simone Petrella, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. 
Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com cyberwire. 